Okay, so here we are on uh, another episode of Building New Realities, the podcast we have at Future Visual, and I'm delighted to invite today an old friend, Simon Roberts, who is the founder of Stripe Partners. Um, he's also currently um, just released a book called The Power of Not Thinking, which I'm super interested to hear more about, so I'm really interested in body-mind intelligence. But your overall title, Simon, or area of expertise is business anthropologist, which I'm yeah. just fascinated um, as, you know, what that actually means as a title. So if you, if you can tell me a bit about your field of expertise and what you do at Stripe. Uh, yeah, so business anthropology, it's a bit of a concocted um, term, but anthropologists have been working in and around businesses for actually for over 100 years. So it's not necessarily uh, a new phenomenon, but um, but anthropologists who work in business and often um, they work in and around tech businesses historically, um, help those companies understand people, simply put, uh, by conducting kind of ethnographic research, which is research which involves taking yourself into other people's worlds um, to better understand, you know, what people get up to, why they behave the way they do, how they think about um, things, how they think about the world, how they construct meaning, um, all in, um, in pursuit of of essentially building better products and services, products and services that that kind of meet people where they're at and, um, you know, suit the kind of lives and contexts in which people kind of actually live as, a, as opposed to how big businesses um, imagine they might live. So it's, it's about providing some sort of ground truth and reality uh, to businesses. And at Stripe Partners, we've been around for seven years um we work a lot in and around tech um so our clients are people like spotify um google facebook intel um and, and non-tech companies too but again that work is is really about helping them think about uh, their customers their communities their you know the worlds they operate in and and bring back kind of deep um well-evidenced insights um that can help um, product teams and product planners and strategists, you know, build stuff that, you know, uh, enchants people's lives. That's the idea. Oh, so, you know, obviously the title of what we're talking about here is Building New Realities. So Stripe's been yeah. around since 2000. Is that right, 2003? No, actually 2013. So oh, you've been working um, in the field since? I, once upon a time, I ran a... I've been working in the field since uh, 2000, really. Yeah, yeah. And so, so, in the years. so in the context of building new realities, were your first, have you always worked with tech clients or did you have more kind of traditional FMCG type companies? I mean, I guess one of the popular phrases you hear these days is that every company is now a tech company. Um, so I'm interested to see when, yeah. you, when you sort of noted the real takeoff or the real acceleration of um digitalization is the wrong term um i guess perhaps we're just now in a period where there's so many um blossoming ecosystems of digitalization of new realities yeah. like you mentioned spotify i mean incredible when you look at what they've yeah. done in the last three four years i'm sure they've been around longer than that but just in terms of the pervasiveness yeah 
in the last three, four years, certainly in the last two years, um, you know, just incredible where you can look at a whole way of, you know, sharing recorded music and how it was done and how something like that can come along and build a new reality. So, yeah, interested in, what, in how you viewed those 20 years because an amazing 20 years to be in your field and, and, and how you see the acceleration yeah. or the context of what building new realities in companies is. Um, that's a big question. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's clear that, yeah, you know, my, my career has been, has sort of dovetailed with, you know, a massive, uh, expansion in kind of both the accessibility of technology, right? So, you know, we've all got phones in our pockets that are, you know, twice as powerful every 18 months from the ones that we had before. And, um, yeah, that makes an enormous amount possible and it makes an enormous amount possible, you know, in very kind of affordable ways for for people within, you know, the developed, but also the developing worlds too. So, um, yeah, I'm a tech optimist. I think, um, I think you know, the evidence would, would, would appear to, to support um, the idea that you know, these technologies are not just kind of, about frivolity, although they can be fun, um, uh, but they're also, you know, amazingly powerful tools. Um, you know, contra what a lot of the critics of, of technology companies say, they are brilliant tools for building communities, for connecting people, for creating economic opportunity, um, and and for having and for having some fun too. Um, you know, and I think the recent months have brought home to us. You know the 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 central kind of importance of of kind of communication technologies to how we retain kind of links with with people that we we can't see um, or certainly we can't touch and we can't visit. So you know, like so much that's happened over the last couple of months, I think you know what what's been revealed is 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 not just that technology is kind of everywhere. Um, but it's actually very hard to imagine a world, you know, in which we don't have these these tools. And I, and I actually think it's super exciting that adoption of, of things like video conferencing and uh, virtual reality and other technologies has been given a a, a big push um, during um, this this crisis because um, they are for kind of everyone. Um, and and I think it's testament. You know, it's testament to the sort of the platforms that have been built, the underlying infrastructures that we often take for granted, you know, the pipes running under the sea um, that enable all of us to kind of seamlessly jump onto to calls and, and, and connect with each other. So, um, so yeah, I think we've, you know, it, it's an obvious point, but we've, we've been in this a period of, of sort of solid, even meteoric growth over 20 years in, in, in terms of, of tech. Um, but the last couple of months have been, have been incredible. I think Satya Nadella at Microsoft, when he announced Microsoft's latest results, said, you know, they've seen two to three years of digital adoption happening in, in, in sort of two months, you know. Um, and that, that just sort of it bears, bears witness to, to what's happening. So, um, yeah, we've, and we've always been about tech, you know, humans. I, I, I view tech as, 
broadly as anything that that sort of increases our capabilities as humans and so you know humans have always from from flint axes up to up to virtual reality we've always been about the tools that we create to extend our capabilities so um i think we're we're set for another big push of of growth and and interesting things happening so yeah, so as a business anthropologist, and with reference to the three months we've just been through, um, you know, COVID in a way has created a new reality for all of us. You know, yeah, at a, at a speed and breadth that is, you know, wouldn't have been been possible as a sort of just corporate uh, experiment. You know, yeah. when people talk to me about a VR adoption uh, and how the business is doing, you know, I refer to this period as giving the VR sector, the immersive sector, kind of three to five years of organic growth uh, in, in two quarters of yeah. one year. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, from with your sort of anthropologist hat on, how do you, how do you view this, uh, this period we've just been through? Do you think that it's going to um, empower people or enable people or guide people to want to work from home or to work with more flexibility? Or do you think business owners are going to look at it? There's some interesting quotes from Barclays where they're, they're saying, yeah, the days of the thousand person office is now yeah. over. Now clearly yeah. there's, there's a, in the short term, they're really mitigating their risk around COVID by saying, okay, we're not going to have lots of people in one big building. Longer mm-hmm. term, there's a massive cost saving and, yeah. uh, and coupled with, Giving people a, a work-life balance that they they might want. So yeah, how do you yeah. think these kind of these two quarters of twenty twenty? Um, yeah, I mean it's 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 clear that you know this huge forced experiment has made businesses that never imagined that they could do things remotely um, do it and have no choice but to do it. And and I think it would be foolish to. Um, imagine a, a sort of reversion to mean. Um, so I think you, you know, yes, you can you can probably kind of sympathise with or even agree with the guy from Barclays who says, you know, these kinds of large offices are things of the past. On the other hand, I think um, I think we can probably let our excitement kind of get ahead of the reality. I think. Yeah, we've been doing actually we've been we're in the middle of some some research on remote work for intel at the moment and our clients on that project wrote a, a very nice piece in fast company it came out a couple of days ago talking about um simple things actually simple things that that matter enormously like um like how we balance work and and life in in this new world and and the office provides huge amounts of um large numbers of things which we can't get at home so simply put there's a spatial kind of physical division between where we work and 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 our home lives and and we all know sometimes to our discomfort that that's now disappeared and the work that we've done on on remote workers over the last few years has demonstrated that you need to be quite a um not a special person, but there's, it takes an awful lot of time to become accomplished as a remote worker. So I can kind of, on the one hand, I can see that we we, we probably won't return to to quite 
you know, the way that offices used to be organized and businesses used to run. On the other hand, I think there's there's huge amounts of um, a benefit in getting people together in one place to do something. And and the principal thing that that, that I think offices create is is shared meaning. Um, and and I think that's going to be particularly problematic for younger people in the workforce. So I think, you know, I wouldn't say I'm at the tail end of my career, but I'm, I'm certainly in the long middle of it. And, and I have, I have social capital, I have relationships, I have networks, I, I know people within my company, albeit a small one. I think if you're new to a business, and you're trying to make sense of, of what the business is really about, what it really believes in, what its culture is, how are you going to do that in a remote, um, in a remote first world? So I think there are, yes, I can see the excitement of, of, of large businesses saying, brilliant, you know, I can offload a third of my office um, space, you know, and I can push cost, you know, to employees and, and so forth. But I think there will be some unanticipated issues around mm. around people and culture and 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 so forth, which uh, won't be quite so easy to wish away. So um, so often, I suppose my job as an anthropologist is is of course to bring that human dimension in and say, great, you know, let's not get let's get not let's not get too excited um, and and return to some of the core things that 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 kind of. That companies and, and workplaces um, actually need to 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 do um, the job that the that the people are there to do. Yeah, I, th- I think that's right. We all, ha- as humans, have a tendency to go, "Way here's the new thing we're doing. Here's the new reality," yeah. and then reality lands, so to speak, and we have to come halfway back and go, "Okay, that's not quite how I envisaged." You know, it always ends up different from how we yeah. perceive, how we project I, that's just how we're wired yeah i mean i think there's a nice is it amara's law that says you know we 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 kind of overestimate you know the impact of technology in the short, in the short term. term and underestimate it in the long term and i think you know with that's equally true of of kind of corona and and remote work and offices that um you know yes you know everyone's had this kind of Damascene conversion to the to the beauty of of remote work, um, and and it would be crazy to underestimate that. Uh, and it's clearly it, it is going to be different in the future. On the other hand, um, you know, there's a very long history of offices. People have been talking yes. for yeah. almost yeah. as long as offices have been around. The offices are dying, and they haven't died, and there's probably a reason for that. So. We're going to be, I think, in more of a mixed economy going forward. Um, and, um, you know, we've, we've all been a, awakened to, to, the, to the benefits of remote work. But I don't think, I don't think we should throw the baby out with the bathwater. I'm, I'm personally looking, quite looking forward to bringing the team back together in one place and, you know, um, and working that way. It's pretty exhausting doing everything on Zoom. Yeah, I mean, I've been thinking of what we're going to do, um, how we're going to use the office. I, I don't think we'll go back to exactly how we were uh, immediately. <laughs> I think because we're a small company, you know, seven people, uh, and because of what we do, um, you know, software development, obviously sales and outreach, but yeah. certainly on the dev side, 
um, with a team who are happy to work that way. There's a lot that can be done remotely. But yeah, yeah. about the office, I've, I think I've, I'll probably think about it in, in making it more of a creative meetup space because obviously yeah. when you go to the office at the moment, go to the office, sit at your desk, look at your tasks, get on with it, have a meeting at 11.30, do some more, another meeting. Now it's this very yeah. formulaic way. And I think it'd be almost interesting to approach the office as, okay, well, we're going to go to the office, but we're not going to turn our machines on straight away. Yeah. It's like, yeah. how can we use the space differently? Uh, even if it's just to talk uh, about aspects of a project we're working on. Um, yeah. I'm, to, I'm going to try and resist this tendency. I mean, it probably lasts about 20 minutes. But <laughs> you know, just to resist this tendency of just turning machines on straight away, because that's not the point, because it's when we're in the, you know, when you're in your laptop or your machine, that's where you are. And this is something that's coming to the fore for me in the context of building new realities or the emerging metaverse uh, to you know the mobile phone that's in your pocket being this third brain, uh, yeah. or the brain. You know these are all new spaces in which we hang out. And if yeah. you're hanging out on your Slack and your Teams list in your laptop, then that doesn't matter if you're at home or if you're in the office because that's the space you're in. All right, you yeah. can reach over and talk to your your colleague if you're in the same office. But I think trying to bring that that interaction on top of it because as soon as you're you're in your machine that that's where you are no i think that's yeah no i think that's absolutely right you know that we've sort of you know we've we've kind of we've we've sort of merged kind of two things that happen in offices over the years you know one is kind of that more creative kind of team-based collaborative activity and then there's the kind of headphones on and the get stuff done Mm -hmm. and um yeah, it, it's it's it, it, the new off, the office of the future looks remarkably like something called WeWork, doesn't it? Um, where you know you go for community, sociality, collaboration, you know, creativity, and then and then the home looks like somewhere where you actually go to get the work done. Um, and um, and so yeah, I think it. I think it's again, it's. This what's happened is 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 just we've been able to kind of a reset in how we think about what these spaces are, are sort of actually for and where they work best. And you know, I'm probably not unusual in that. You know, if I take a Friday Friday from home, every so often, you know, I can bash out a piece of writing or you know get a chunk of slides written or, or whatever it is much more effectively than the endless disruption of an office so um so i think it's it's just about it's just about a reconfiguration really and a realization of of what the office is kind of really really good for as opposed to kind of not quite so good for um and that's great you know um and that may mean that we can have slightly smaller offices or you know the way we lay them out will be different um and that's that all that good stuff's to come um but yeah, no, it does amuse me that um, the office of the future probably looks a bit like WeWork. Um, but um, WeWork 2.0, here we come. Yeah, yeah, I think that's, that's an interesting point. I and mean, what you've highlighted with the sociality yeah. of the community and just a bit of a fun space. I mean, something we're playing with is we've been, we've been building a few spaces internally that are just yeah. fun environments to go and hang out. Um, yeah. We built kind of like an art gallery space and just stuffed it with you know, massive 
Jeff Koons sculptures and uh, big, like those big plastic toys from Japan, Moors. Mm. Uh, and but because obviously we're in VR, we can go and, you know, kind of got superpowers, right? So we can go and stand on top of the 80-foot cause sculpture uh, and look out over the space. Uh, and we built another environment that you know looks a bit like a trampoline park. <laughs> it's got all these tunnels kind of linking um, different rooms together. And from from you know from our perspective, obviously a company that works in uh, immersive spaces and trying to think what this emerging new reality looks like. A part of the offering, a part of the package could be these immersive environments, right? Where you just go and hang out and have fun. But you don't need to go and have, you know, to have the 10,000 square foot WeWork experiences just for your company. You don't need to be paying 5,000 pounds a week for the local space. We can just go and build spaces that have different flavors. So if it's like today, we're gonna talk about the creativity of our company, go into a space that has got creative, creative works, that reflect what your company's about. Then have a fun space where you just go and smash stuff and fire kind of confetti cannons at each other. And the ability to build all these, what in reality would be super expensive because one of our guiding mantras of the company is providing access to situations and scenarios that are physically impossible or prohibitively expensive in real life. Means that anyone can have these kind of range of tools so it becomes part of your blended um employee experience your ex yeah 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 nice yeah so yeah that, that's no and i think yeah yeah i'll, I'll send you so all of these you've built virtually yeah okay amazing yeah yeah so i think it's um yeah it's going to be there's going to be a really interesting set of shifts around the office that's that's definitely definitely the case and um yeah i guess it's a it's it's a thing i've thought a lot about over the last few years which is you know how we use the body to think right rather and 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 maybe the the office sort of becomes a place where we take the sort of we take our bodies to work and 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 the home sort of becomes a place where we we kind of access you know more of the cognitive um uh, side of 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 of, the, of our lives, as it were, which is you know when we want to to bash out code or to write something, um, you know we can we can sit in relative isolation, as it were, notwithstanding children and and so forth, and and get stuff done. So um, so maybe that's maybe that's one way to think about a possible future. Mm. Yeah, I think it'd be part part of the the blended offering. I was talking to. Uh someone last week who is talking about, you know, customer experience, how employee experience will become like customer experience, you know, in the way that yeah. uh, enterprise tech now follows consumer tech, you know, and yeah. customer experience is kind of very well thought out, polished, depending on which brand or center you're interacting with. And the employee experience could follow the same kind of trajectory. So you're really thinking about what's, yeah. the, what's the employee landing space like, um you know yeah it's kind of an elevation from like the perks and the package totally so totally. Yeah, you started to mention uh, the body mind yeah i thought when i was reading what you'd been up to and obviously saw your your link to the book the power of not thinking um which is available now on amazon is, is in fact it's pre it's pre-release isn't it right now i have to put an order in myself 
Um, yeah, so it's Corona style. Obviously, bookshops are bookshops are shut. Um, so the yeah, the, there's a sort of dual dual launch strategy. So Kindle and audio book is available now. Right, and and then the real thing is is uh, the hardback is coming out July 9th. July 9th. and and the power of not thinking, you know. So so tell us a a, a bit uh, about what, what 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 you're writing about and how you how you segued from business anthropology into uh, into you know the power of not thinking. Um. Yeah, well, the subtitle of the book is How Our Bodies Learn and Why We Should Trust Them. And I suppose the central thing that I'm, I'm trying to looking at and exploring in the book is, um, is I suppose, a tendency over the last several hundred years to, to think um, of intelligence as, as, a, as a property of, of our minds, as it were. Um, and so the book is, is a sort of a corrective to that. It's trying to... Um, tease out the the ways in which actually our bodies learn um how our bodies are central to our our experience and understanding of the world of the world and um you know and and how we use kind of the intelligence of our bodies to to do lots of very kind of everyday mundane things like driving cars or scrambling eggs or riding bikes um and how that sort of knowledge is has has a sort of very uh, I think particular characteristic, which is that it's very well suited to improvisation. So, you know, once you've learned how to drive a car, you can pretty much port that ability to any type of car on any road and deal with, um, you know, what the author um, David Epstein and Range calls, you know, the sort of the wicked, wicked problem spaces. So, um, you know, spaces in our everyday lives where we don't actually know what's kind of coming around the corner. Um, literally or figuratively, if we're driving a car, um, you know, and those are the—that's the sort of intelligence that's incredibly difficult to reproduce through artificial intelligence. So, um, yeah, the, the delays in the arrival of of, of kind of self-driving cars are, are are in no small part to the fact that what, what we're trying to reproduce is 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 what I call in the book embodied knowledge. So that the knowledge that our bodies come to have. Um, and to answer the, the second bit of your question, you know, why 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 did I write a book about this? Um, I suppose the short short answer is, um, you know, once upon a time near the beginning of of Stripe Partners, our business, we we took a, a bunch of executives from from Duracell camping in the um, in a national park near the Mexican border which was a kind of an odd thing to do. And that we did it because um, they wanted to understand um, the outdoors. They wanted to understand people that spend a lot of time um, either as kind of, you know, occasional campers and, and more hardened kind of outdoors people. Um, and, and they wanted to, to sort of think about how they could create kind of communications and marketing and, and business plans around those types of consumers. And they wanted to understand them and their world. And we said, well, there's no better way than sort of, you know, going there and doing that, um, meeting some people um, who do uh, camp and camping ourselves. So uh, we rented a load of tents. Um, we, we got a bunch of people to come with us. The client flew in from New York and we spent the weekend camping. 
And they produced an amazing uh, advertising campaign, integrated campaign off the back of that, which won many awards and was very commercially successful. And the clients at the end of the weekend sort of said, well, that was kind of amazing. You know, we, you know, we know what to do now. Um, we really have an instinctive understanding of these people. Um, and let's see what happens. And, and yeah, the campaign came out and it, it knocked everyone flat. And, um, and I started to think about, well, why did that work? Why did that work so much better than focus groups or not that I do focus groups, but why did that work better than me going off and doing some research and creating a PowerPoint deck and, and playing it back to our client and telling them what, what was going on and what that might mean for them. And, you know, digging around the sort of literature, you know, came up with this concept um, called embodied knowledge. It's, it seemed interesting and it seemed to sort of speak to this sort of knowledge that you acquire when you're exposed to the world which is quite different from the sort of knowledge you acquire when somebody else drones on with a PowerPoint presentation or, you know, arguably even when you read a book. Um, so the book has, has really been a sort of three or four year project of, of sort of trying to work out why that camping trip was, was such a success, what it did for people, how it works, um, which, which, led, which led to the body rather than the mind. So the embodied, embodied knowledge concept um, is, that you found in a book, is there a specific concept you can uh, refer to? Is that a bit more of a general um, package? Um, yeah, so I mean, I suppose in short, the idea of embodied knowledge is, 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 is that our bodies through either kind of exposure of, exposure to or experience of the world or indeed by sort of repeated practice of things, acquires um, what a philosophical kind of knowledge, knowledge how, as opposed to knowledge that. Um, so it's, it, yeah, the bicycle riding is a really good example of that. Um, you know, once you've learned how to ride a bike, you never forget how to ride a bike, right? You just, your body instinctively knows um, to, uh, you know, to pedal, um, to shift its weight ever so slightly. It also knows, interestingly, and this was something I talk about in the book, uh, mathematicians and engineers have been thinking, have been trying to work out for, you know, for, for at least 100 odd years, as long as bicycles have been around, how it is we actually do them. So you have this interesting kind of conundrum where we, we can do things, but the science can't really explain how it is we do them. Um, and that's another really interesting feature of embodied knowledge, that embodied knowledge is very difficult to articulate. So I'm teaching my son to drive at the moment. And, um, yeah, he asked me questions about, you know, when he should brake or, you know, how much clutch he should put on and, and when he should take it off. And, and those are things that if you drive a car, you just know instinctively like how to do it, right? You don't even think about it, hence the title of the book. So when we have this, this knowledge that we've acquired and it's residing in our bodies, we're actually sort of in a way able not to think about things and just to do them. Um, but I think this idea that embodied knowledge is very difficult to articulate is interesting because so much cultural knowledge is embodied. Um, so, you know, when you go to a, a foreign country and you have this kind of shock of the new, 
it's often a result of the fact that, you know, in a sense, you know, there's lots of unspokens in culture that, you know, you're you're completely unfamiliar with. But over the course of weeks or months, you start to sort of acquire that cultural knowledge. So you you almost know how to comport yourself, how to hold your body, how to, to behave in certain ways, or even sort of, you know, how to use, you know, odd looking toilets or whatever it may be. So all of these things are not written down, um, but they're vital um they're vital bits of knowledge to be able to operate in 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 that particular world. Sure, yeah. I mean, those sound like sounds like an approach you've taken with the book. There is almost like ethnographic uh, observances. So the yeah. part of the body mind intelligence that I'm particularly interested in is, and you touched on it earlier, is you know for the last couple of hundred years the mind has been or the brain has been held up as uh, you know almighty and in charge of the the, the ship and then uh, yeah. i think as you get older and observe yourself and you act in your actions you realize that perhaps perhaps it's just personally you know your, your brain's like actually in your mind is like a um a young teenager who's been given too much sugar and is running around going i'm in charge i'm in charge we're going to do this yeah. we're going to do this um versus the the body which feels like a sort of much wiser calmer seen it all before being there done that doesn't need to shout about which direction your speech thought or actions are going to take but obviously the um the most tangible or accessible layer of consciousness resides in the the young 12 year old brain that's running around telling you how to do things do you in the book do you look at those two dichotomies of sort of body wisdom versus you know the, the brain that's driving the ship or thinks it's driving the ship and do you look at where people have perhaps where you interpret where you take clues um around the reality of a situation like rather than your reactive amygdala driven uh over caffeinated over sugared uh 21st century mind that's running around with all the noise overload and is kind of acting yeah. in that way Versus the body, which doesn't seem to react to noise, um, uh, isn't so reactive to noise, and perhaps holds a uh, you know a deeper sense or, or, or truth or, or wisdom around a particular situation. Um, yeah. So on the first point, I do talk about um, I talk about the idea of, of sort of choking. So there's there's lots of interesting studies. Um, that have often been done in and around sports like golf and and football, um, and and actually they're 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 interesting in that they explore how um, they explore how how people who are good at golf, for example, are able to attend to other things. So in the in the tests that they run, there are kind of beeps that people have to listen out for and 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 acknowledge verbally when they hear the beep as they do some putting and what the scientists sort of running these studies demonstrated really well was that when you're good at golf already you can attend to other things in other words you almost don't need your brain mm. um, you certainly don't need kind of executive function of your brain whilst you're doing these things it's actually as much as anything about just sort of letting your body kind of get on with it Whereas those that are not so good at um, at golf, um, their performance massively deteriorates 
if they're trying to attend to something else because their body doesn't yet know how to successfully putt a ball. So, um, and these studies have been repeated quite a, quite a few times. So, um, and I, you know, as a personal reflection in the book, I, I talk about when I, you know, I'm not a particularly good skier. When I go skiing, it takes a few days each time I go to kind of get into the swing of things. And, and in the early parts of a, of a week away skiing, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm doing a kind of a mental kind of over narration as it were, of yeah. <laughs> trying to tell on? myself, yeah. trying to tell myself what to do. Yeah. Um, and, um, and actually that inhibits performance and that's, you know, in a way that's sort of in line with, with the, with the sort of science, you know, and, and then suddenly, you know, you're back in that groove again. So, and I think that's, that's this sort of point about the subtitle in the book, you know, why we should trust them. I think, you know, often, you know, the instincts that our bodies have are, um, are trustable. Um, they do know what to do. You know, the philosopher Merleau-Ponty talks about kind of knowledge in the hand. And, you know, when you're sitting typing on a, on a, on a laptop, you know, you have knowledge in the hand. Your hands know where the keys are, you know. And that's very useful. Um, it's very useful because when you're writing something on a on a keyboard, um, you actually want to be attending to what you're writing. So actually, in a way, you want to be thinking, you want to be using your your brain at that point, right? Because you're you're thinking, well, what do I write? You don't want to be attending to your where your hands are on the keyboard. Mm. Um, so there's a kind of an, an almost an everyday utility to this, which publishers like things to be useful um, for obvious reasons. They like like people to be able to take away messages that they can use in their everyday lives. But so whether it's useful or not, I don't know, but it's, it, it, it strikes me as important for us to recognize that, that our, the, the knowledge, the knowledge that we have in the body allows us to be able to use our brains um, at the same time. Right. So we can attend to the thing that's important and, and, and spend less time thinking about the thing that, that isn't important, which is where are my hands over the keyboard? Because you should be able to trust in the fact that you know once you've basically mastered the, the layout of, of of any particular laptop that you're working on, you know your hands know where to go. So so it's very useful to kind of I think reset our understanding of of kind of where knowledge lies and 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 you know the book is a sort of an exercise in demonstrating that much of what we know is is in our bodies, not in our brains. So how do you how do you relate that to like your do you and do you talk to your your corporate customers about this? You know how do you express that? Hey guys, don't worry so much. You know you should uh, let, let's tap into your tap into your brain, particularly in you know very executive function driven activities. Yeah, uh, like the, the sort of the tech companies. Do you, um, do you try yeah. do you try and relay the? The, the power of not thinking for those customers or is this just a bit of a a, a different strand of your own observances um yeah i mean i suppose the you know the book is a sort of at many levels yeah it's a personal kind of endeavor um and i was going to say vendetta personal endeavor <laughs> um but um but no i mean it 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 has it has implications for for how we go about doing research so um you know, from the kind of Duracell trip, camping trip onwards, you know, we've tried to incorporate as many kind of, as it were, 
what we call embodied experiences into the way that we do our research and we do our research with our clients sort of not for them so we take them away into the world with us um we typically you know rent an airbnb somewhere in the world and we run our research from there and and it goes back to the the point i was making earlier about the fact that a lot of the knowledge that people have is um um, as somebody once said, we know more than we can tell. So, you know, much of the research industry is focused on on interviewing people and getting them to tell us um, either what they know or what they think we want to know. Um, and actually, if you take a more embodied approach, what you're um, what you're actually asking people to do and asking yourself to do is to is to have experiences yourselves, which will take you closer to other people's worlds or to parallel worlds. So we did some work with a, um, a, a, a an online pharmacy company in the in the UK, and they were all about discretion. They were selling, you know, sexual health-related things, whether it was, um, you know, little blue diamond-shaped pills or things for, you know, venereal diseases. And, and clearly their customers were coming to them largely because this was a discretion great service it beats talking to the family doctor about it um but we really wanted to sort of give them a sense of like what discretion sort of feels like or what its absence feels like so we took them off to a sex shop in soho and and got them all to to buy products that you know they were deeply uncomfortable buying um and then to kind of come out afterwards and and video themselves talking about it and um and I remember it really well because it, you know, th- these were very kind of visceral experiences. And one of the working title for the book originally was visceral uh, or visceral thinking. Um, yeah. So this was about saying to people, like, go and feel what this is actually like. Like, go and feel what absence of discretion, you know, you know, is like. Because you're all about discretion, and you can un- start to therefore better understand what. Um, what its absence might look like. Um, so, so the simple answer to your question, yes, we try wherever we can to kind of incorporate bodily experiences into the, into all of our research, both what we do as individuals, but also what we get our clients to do. Um, and we really believe that that's important because. It takes them beyond the words that other people are using to describe their experience and allows them themselves to have experiences which the body is very, very good at retaining, right? Mm. Um, so I take the view that, you know, because you experience the world through your body, you know, you should use your body um, if you seek to understand other people's worlds. Um, so, so, yes, it's a very, it's a sort of, it's a it's an area of deep personal interest, but one that I you know we found to have kind of profound utility for our for our clients. Interesting. And then I know you've obviously worked with uh, you know some of your customers are in in the VR space and the yeah. emerging immersive uh, worlds. Do you think um, as a sort of crossover, you know, if it's difficult to take people camping or it's difficult to take a group of people to a sex shop, for example, do you, is it on your radar at all, at all to trial some of these uh, visceral uh, experience generators, um, but using uh, immersive technology? I and mean, what you were just talking about, you know, getting 
people to feel the environment. There's a very interesting environment called, I think this is called Freud VR. And, right. uh, and you, and, and it's like you're having a session with Freud and, and you, and you get to, um, think in this slightly more, uh, intellectually stimulated environment. Um, and one of our last guests we were talking about, you know, she was saying the results from that were quite startling that you put people yeah. in, a, in a kind of more, um, intellectually driven environment that they feel they're in and and the results kind of marry up accordingly i know in some of our work you know where we built training environments for for even for ground crew uh, in aviation and it's the threat of you know the aircraft catching on fire different uh different environmental um setups you know daytime nighttime (coughs) excuse me high visibility (laughs) <laughs> high visibility low visibility it's yeah. created a uh you know kinesthetic biochemical response yeah. so yeah. i was wondering if, you, if you'd given it any thought um not as much thought <coughs> as i think we probably should um i mean I, I talk in the book about something that facebook built um which was sort of famously called uh, 2g tuesdays so uh, it was trying to give engineers a visceral feeling of what it's like to be on low in a, on a low bandwidth network. Um, and it's a sort of partial answer to this. I mean, you, you know, we're probably all, all familiar with, you, you know, almost that bodily kind of anxiety you get when, a, when you're on a slow network connection and you're watching a page trying to load and, and what they try not to as do much as if I got an air, not as much as if I got an airplane on fire in front of me and it's no, well, well exactly but I think um, so I think you know those, those are sort of hints that um, in our world as it were people are starting to kind of take um, virtual as it were experiences more seriously um you know given where we began earlier i think um you know corona should probably encourage us and the changes that it's going to precipitate should encourage us to think more about um about kind of virtual worlds you know not least because a lot of the the the, you know the methods that i've talked about are are very much um dependent on us being able to try to fly places to go places with with people um and i suspect you know one of the the principal barriers is is not one actually about 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 willingness to try but but is perhaps from my end at least uh, uh, you know an absence of a deep understanding of kind of how easy it is to build kind of bespoke virtual worlds kind of you know quickly as it were um and and kind of get those mocked up that people can then inhabit um i know that on a project that we did with a very large messaging service owned by um, one of our clients um the team did research all around the world and 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 filmed i can't remember what kind of camera they were using but filmed um people's homes and environments in ways that could be then viewed through through a, a, a virtual reality headset and um and i from what i know that was incredibly useful for for people bunkered down in california who had never experienced kind of you know the insides of a home in jakarta or mm. um some such so i think we're 
you know, we're probably right now at, at the point where, um, you know, the research industry should be probably taking this a bit more seriously. Hmm. Well, we can have some interesting conversations. I about think we should. About I that. Think we should. Uh, after I this. think we should take it offline, as they say. <laughs> Let's take the online offline. Yeah, we need a new phrase for that, don't we? <laughs> um, <laughs> so what are, you, what, are you, what are you curious about right now, other than getting your team back into the office, you know, in the sort of wider world of uh, your speciality? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think exactly what we've just been talking about, which is, you know, anthropology as a discipline um you know emerged you know in in the in the kind of colonial era um and it was sort of you know turn of last century so sort of you know the early nine early 1900s when it became characterized by this going to places and being with people and living their lives as they live them and um you know ever since it's been very much about you know experiencing other people's worlds and you know that's fundamentally challenged at the moment um so i am both professionally but also kind of existentially challenged by you know what my you know what my business, but 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 also what people in my profession do in that new world, um, and how um, how we move on, as it were, from what I refer to as the kind of cheap white 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 bread and 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 baked beans of you know the, the bare minimum of, of of kind of fodder for us lot is is kind of digital diaries using mobile phones and and video conference calls right that's our replacement for kind of going somewhere and and being in somebody else's world um so i'm i'm pretty challenged at the moment to to be thinking okay how can we take you know all of the wonders of embodying other people's worlds and and move them into an environment where we can't go there anymore mm. um so um that's yeah that that that's very much kind of you know that's very much top of mind um and i'm and i'm keen to sort of drive the embodied knowledge kind of lens through that um because because i'm a great believer in you know i'm a great believer in in my clients experiencing the world they want to understand not us doing it for them um and so i think with that comes you know fantastic opportunities in a way to sort of say well we can't hold your hand and take you to the sex shop in soho to buy you know a strap on but you know can you do that for yourself and record it and reflect on the experience um uh, where you can get you know where you can do that um so that's a sort of a, a silly and, and a kind of an extreme example but i think it's turning it back actually and saying, you know, this is a great opportunity for you to become more of a researcher and get much more reflective about, about understanding a world. And, and we can't, we can't do it all for you anymore. Um, so I think it's going to be, there are going to be some interesting shifts, but, um, um, but yeah, I mean, I'm intrigued by both the potential of technology, I suppose, to help here, but also, um, you know, where its limits might lie and then what the, what the beautiful synthesis of the two would be. Yeah, it sounds almost like you're 
it's almost becoming a bit more advisory with your customers. You're you're advising them or guiding them to go out and experience things for themselves rather yeah. than necessarily to hold their hand and take them out there. You know, you're providing a framework of of which sounds right, but it's building up a framework of, of knowledge over your experience of your business over the last 20 years and if you want to drive down and feel what your customers or your employees are going through then yeah. here are suggestions we would make and then we can help you yeah. with the debriefing um so yeah in some ways yeah i mean there's a there's a there's a really good example of that um uh, in writing the book i went to hong kong to uh, sort of participate in a 24-hour simulator um, which is run by a, a global charity um, called Global Crossroads. And um, it's, it's called the Refugee Simulator, um, or uh, I think Simulator or Simulation, I think they prefer to have it known as. And, um, and they do a kind of one-hour version of this at, at, at Davos each year, which, which always gets a bit of criticism. But, but having done it, um, it's the most amazing kind of powerful um, experience of of kind of lots of different dimensions of a refugee's life, and it, it starts in a kind of terrifying way, um, and and I think it's a good um, it's a good model. Okay, it's very embodied, it's very physical, yeah, it's very uncomfortable um, physically, but what they've done is they've they've done a really good job of of kind of modularizing it, and they've taken it, you know, several. 100,000 people have, have participated in various aspects of, of, their, of the 24-hour uh, kind of full Monty, as it were. And um, again, I think it just lays down some clues for kind of how we need to sort of think about um, delivering experiences to people, both within the world of research, but also beyond, which is, um, you know, just to, to take the limitations that we're now being presented with and and use them constructively, as it were, to kind of rethink kind of old old models of delivery. Cool. So uh, I like to kind of get a couple of book recommendations from guests. So have you got a sign yeah. from the fabulous The Power of Not Thinking? Um, have you got any yeah. uh, kind of favourite books either in this in this area or or elsewhere? Oh God, yes, I have. Um, so you talked earlier a bit about. Um, about about the kind of the mind and and the question I didn't answer, which was about the kind of the effervescent sort of unstoppable mind or you know the the noise and mm. um, and there's a brilliant book by a guy called Jonathan Haidt H A I D T called The Righteous Mind um, and yeah I wish I'd read it years ago um, and it's really about um, it's really about how the kind of how the mind works and um, and how we all like to think that um, we're very, um, as it were, kind of logical and um, and thoughtful in the way that our minds operate. But actually, I mean, he draws a lovely parallel between kind of most of, most people's minds are like the president. Um, when well, that's how we like to think. It's the presidential. I've thought about it, and this is the decision I've made. But actually, most of the time, our brains operate as the press spokesman who's trying to justify what our minds already decided. Mm. Um, and so, the book is is really about kind of these two ways of two ways in which our minds work, and 
Um, and, and he has, you know, so he, he lays out this, this very nice kind of distinction between, you know, the justifications that the mind is most of the time um, being used to kind of deploy for things that we've already made decisions on and then transfers that, of course, to the world of politics and, it's, it's, and, 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 other, and other things too. But there's really a kind of a plea to, um, to, to try to... Um, uh, to try to be less rigid in our thinking about how we think and how others think. Um, and, and ultimately, he says, there's no point in arguing about, pe- about things with people, whether it's Brexit or whatever else, if they've already made their decision, because mm. it all it becomes is a slanging match, mm. because they, uh, you know, their mind is just going to go, I'm going to offer you justifications for, how, for the decisions I've already made. So you need to meet them in that other place and, and, in, and sort of speak to their um and speak to their to the to the to the to the sort of passion side of, and the instinctive side of their of their brain so it's a it's a pretty remarkable book actually um and i've recommended it to to loads and loads of people um and a second book um well there's a brilliant book that i think people should read right now and it's called on the internet and it's by a um a philosopher called Hubert Dreyfus, who is a massive critic of artificial intelligence. And, and this is a book on, about on kind the, of what the virtual sorry, world it's sort it's of called, can't... It's, it's just on, called On the Internet. By, um, on the, by uh, Hubert Dreyfus, as yeah. in the Dreyfus Affair, D-R-E-Y-F-U-S. Anyway, so he's a phenomenologist, so somebody like me who thinks about the world experienced through the body. Um, and he's not, he's not sort of an out-and-out out sort of like, I don't, I don't buy the virtual world, you know. He's very thoughtful about it, but it's a really kind of brilliant account of, of like what is missing um, in the virtual world and, and sort of, you know, perhaps how we should think about, um, you know, what, what's, what's absent when, when things go virtual. Um, and I think, you know, for somebody who works in virtual reality, what's really interesting, because he's, he's very into ideas about mood and sentiment, how we read the weather in a room, um, and, and again, how the body and physicality shapes um, so much of our, of our daily experience, which gets lost in, in he's, it's a bit old now, the book, but he's talking about second life, um, still going, but, but not heard about so much these days. Anyway, very easy to read for a book written by a philosopher, very, very suggestive. Um, and, you know, with, with not much over a weekend, you could probably just get it read. And it's, it's, it's amazing, very quotable. Um, he has a brilliant quote, whatever a hug does, I'm pretty sure a tailie hug can't do it. <laughs> um, so um, I think we all know at the moment that tailie hug is a, we're okay, but you know we probably what, just want to give our mama You know home. what, this, I mean, we probably haven't got time to go into another call. There's a really, uh, with this whole emerging metaverse, um, there's a, a, re- a really interesting phenomena that hasn't been written about yet because it's so new that I think is going to emerge. And it's when my wife tried uh, our platform, Vision XR, and she met one of um, my colleagues in there, and he was passing a stack of stuff back and forth. And... Um, she had this feeling because because he was some stuff and she she came out going, oh, I've got this very strong sense of connection with Ben that I wasn't expecting. Yeah. And, yeah. and then 
And then we did it with in one of the rooms that I was mentioning earlier. Uh, uh, we, we were just playing around. I said, "All right, guys, we're going to do uh, we're, you know, we're going to do hold hands uh, in VR," which was nearly as as uncomfortable yeah. as doing it in in the real world. Now, and I think there's a really interesting scene that is the brain just filling in and going, "Oh, I'm holding hands, therefore I'm having yeah. a sensation of holding hands," or at a very subtle level, yeah. Are the photons that are being generated by the light, uh, given that you know humans, the world yeah. we live in is all some form of electricity and interconnected energy slash frequency, um, and was there therefore a very um, light connection? Now, not comparable. Yeah. Big hub, yeah. which is super powerful, even more powerful with people you don't know because you're not familiar with the yeah. field, and it's a very open. Uh, compassionate gesture but there's there's definitely some small threads of of, of replication um, yeah and i don't know whether it's just the brain filling in because it's going oh we're touching hands and that's what it feels like or whether there is this kind of subtle layer so uh, I, I agree with hubert that you know whatever hug is in real life it's it's it's, it's not the same as virtual but there's there's a, a, a thread there to be explored no no, there definitely is. And there's probably, um, you know, like, you know, just as Jonathan Haidt would say, you know, as you look for, as you look for materials to, to inform the argument of your book, you, you clearly blot out the stuff that maybe, you know, doesn't, doesn't necessarily accord with the point of view that you've already developed. So yeah, exactly. um, I'm very it. open to, um, we, we got both of those I, I, I'm very open work, to, working in parallel there. Like, Whatever, whatever yeah. well no and i think but but i think you're probably you know you're probably you're probably right there probably is already a good body of science um in fact you know that a third book recommendation would be would, would be one called um i think it's called how the how the body shapes how we think um which talks you know and it's written by cognitive science that scientists are much more uh, a bit more kind of uh, uh, it's very approachable but it's it's a bit more kind of anchored in 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 some deep deep scientific work in this space but um i'm pretty sure there's an interesting emerging field there for for, for those that care to look so mm. um um but still i'd like a hug yeah we'd all like a hug um thank you so <laughs> much so si. i really enjoyed uh, talking to you there are, are there any uh, shout outs not shout outs are there any um socials or uh, blogs or links in that we can point people towards uh, relevant to your work or um, yeah well definitely i mean you know if you're interested in some of the you know if you're in the research world and you're interested in in this kind of research approach we use we call the studios there's a couple of there's a couple of things you can download on our website um you know that that you know almost precursors to what's in the book um but obviously having slaved over the book um i'd love you all to to take a copy and um or buy multiple copies and distribute them out the back of your car um <laughs> when you're next at sainsbury's or something um no I, you know i'd love to hear the but I'd love to hear people's thoughts on the book um, as much as anything else, although it's kind of done and dusted now. Um, you know, it's all about, you know, it's it's really for a nonfiction book. It's all about the conversations that it it strikes up. And, 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 and I'm looking forward to kind of criticism as much as praise, actually. Um, 
I'd love to know kind of where people think I've I've got it wrong and um and and to put me right. So um you know, but otherwise I'm ideas bazaar on Twitter. Um, ideas bazaar so. on Twitter, lovely, great. All right, well thanks again. Really enjoyed uh, talking to you and pleasure. Thank you for having me.